to give you some orientation and a little help with the story that is going to be rendered in this poem, I thought I'd give a little background about the legend of Faustus, how it developed. Its earliest recollection is in the 1500s uh, from Germany. And it may be related to folk legends, stories in which there are deals made with the devil, such as the story in which a devil built a bridge, but then is cheated out of the human soul that he expected in payment. That story is as early as the 12th century. The legend first appears in literature in Germany in 1587 in a book written by uh, Johann Spies in Frankfurt. Christopher Marlowe does his famous tragical history of Dr. Faustus. In uh, 1604, it is first published. He probably wrote it in 1592-1593. There is a lost version by Lessing in 1784. There are a number of other German versions. And then, of course, Goethe's Faustus, or Faust, in 1833, it was published. He spent most of his life writing it. There are some versions uh, in modern times. Thomas Mann wrote a version of Dr. Faustus, and Paul Valere wrote a version of Faust in the 1940s, 1950s. There are operas based on the damnation of Faust by Berlioz, a symphony by Franz Liszt. At the end of the 20th century, Ian Watts would recognize the legend of Faust along with that of Don Quixote, Don Juan, and Robinson Crusoe as among the principal myths of the individualism of modernity. The original Faust, if there was one, was a person named George Faust. Faust being a common German surname, which can be translated as Fist. And he appeared in historical records in 1520 in a ledger entry by the Bishop of Bramberg on a receipt of a payment for the bishop's astrological chart. He was a sometime schoolteacher, sometime vagabond, who claimed to be a necromancer. Called by others a braggart, he was banned from some towns and punished in others. And in others still, he was willingly employed to give his magical or prophetical services. He called himself Philosopher of Philosophers. A sermon by a Protestant clergyman of Bales, John Geist, contains tales of Faust's magic, including the belief that he was accompanied by a dog and a horse that were demons, and that the dog would assume the shape of a servant to serve his evening meals. Another contemporary recites the legend of the flight and the fall of Faust, which event was actually borrowed from the legend of Simon Magus. Others' more vague references include a letter warning a friend of a braggart and a fool named Faustus in 1532, another letter in 1507 about a practitioner of black magic named George Sabilicus, who called himself Faustus Jr. Faustus may have been used, in fact, as a stage name 
by George. Other letters and public records reference George Faust, or a Faustus, as an astrologist, a necromancer, a magician, during the period of 1520 to 1540, when there appeared a story of his violent death at the hands of the devil. He is called variously a philosopher, a demigod, and the devil's brother-in-law. Martin Luther himself references him in his table talks, as does his disciple Melanchthon. At any rate, after the supposed death of George Faust in 1540, references to a Johann Faust now increased. And these references seem to be fed by folklore more than historic incident. The first collection of Faust, Faust tales was made by a Wolf Wambach, a town chronicler of Erfurt, but it does not survive. We have, however, tales told from third hand by Wambach. For example, that he was a lecturer at the University of Erfurt, and during those lectures that he would conjure up heroes and other figures from the Trojan War. Their aspects were so frightening, for example, Cyclops appeared with Greek bodies dangling from his teeth, that the audience would run away. It was said that when some professors expressed regret that so many classics had been lost, Faust volunteered to recover all the works of Plautus and Terence, but the professors of theology would not allow it, insisting that the devil might slip in all sorts of objectionable and improper passages when he did. In 1587, then, the history of the damnable life and deserved death of Dr. John Faustus appeared in Germany, written by Johann Spies. The story, following the familiar line of a Protestant morality play, told the story of how he had perverted his doctor of divinity by curiosity for other knowledge, fell into fantasies and deep cogitations, and pursued the devilish arts, and had the Chaldean, Persian, Hebrew, Arabian, and Greek tongues in his familiarity, used figures, characters, conjurations, incantations, with many other ceremonies belonging to the infernal arts as necromancy, charms, soothsaying, witchcraft, enchantment, and being delighted with books, words, and names of such. He studied day and night. Spies wrote, quote, It is written, No man can serve two masters, and thou shalt not tempt Lord thy God. But Faustus threw away all this in the wind and made his soul of no estimation, regarding more his worldly pleasure than the joys to come. Therefore, at the day of judgment, there is no hope of his redemption. The book by Spies was translated into English and published in England in 1592, one year before Marlowe's untimely death. Dr. Faustus was itself staged a year after Marlowe's death in 1594 for the first time, and it wasn't published until 1604 in one version called Version A, and then again in 1616 in another version called Version B. Included with this podcast is a PDF copy of a Version uh, A text with some annotations and some modifications 
corrections by me. Because Marlowe's play, in some instances, directly quotes the English version of Faust's book, there is no doubt that it was based upon Faust's book as its principal story, but he also had taken legends from other sources, it would seem, and incorporated material according to his own predilection. Marlowe's life curiously parallels that of the legend of Dr. Faustus. And so it's worthwhile spending some time talking about him, how he got to be who he was, and how he came to write the play. Marlowe was born in Canterbury in 1564. At the time, it was a small village of just about 4,000 people, but it did have the primate of England as the residence. The Cathedral of Canterbury was where Thomas Becket had been martyred. During Marlowe's youth at Canterbury and its environment, it became a refuge for foreign Protestants, especially the French Huguenots, who were fleeing Catholic persecution. It's surmised that Marlowe had learned his French from these people. Marlowe was born in the same year as Shakespeare. He was the son of John Marlowe, a cobbler, and the eldest in a family of all girls. We do not know where or how he must have early obtained a grounding in his reading and writing and grammar, but he qualified for a scholarship at age 15 to the King's School in Canterbury, and there he acquired a fluency in Latin and Greek. Marlowe also likely acquired his first library, Ovid, for example, Tyndall's translation of the Bible, a book of common prayer, of course, and the works of Machiavelli. Marlowe was nicknamed Machiavel by his companions. Whatever else it means, it reflects the admiration he held for that philosopher. In 1580, at age 17, he matriculated to Cambridge and the Corpus Christi College as the scholar of Archbishop Parker of Canterbury, a bit older by two years than the common scholar. He studied now Latin and Hebrew. Reading of books other than prescribed was frowned upon, and the object of his study was the occupation of divinity. This was the time of the Renaissance, when new literature was becoming available. He himself read Ovid avidly, including texts that had otherwise been forbidden, Ovid's erotic literature. It's from this time that we have a portrait of Marlowe, dated 1585. It's not so named for him, but it has been attributed to him. At this time, he was age 23-25. His scholarship was interrupted by some unexplained absences. It's thought that these absences were attributed to the services of the Privy Council, which subsequently wrote to the college in 1587 to ensure that he be reinstated in spite of them, explaining that those absences were for reasons of secret service for the Queen. That service, by other evidence, is thought to entail spying, spying at the Jesuit seminary in Reims, where it's thought that conspirators were gathering against the queen. It's supposed that Francis Walsingham, who was the organizer of, his, of Her Majesty's spy service, was his sponsor in the matter. Walsingham, or rather his son, would later become his literary patron. 
Walsingham the Elder was a witness to the Paris massacre earlier in the century when some 2,000 Huguenots were slaughtered by French Catholics. Marlowe himself would later take that witness and write of it in a poem. Another player with whom Marlowe became involved at this time was Robert Poley, who was Walsingham's uh, confidant, who had played a role as a double agent in encouraging the conspiracy of assassination of the Queen by Anthony Babington. Poley it was who revealed the letters that were exchanged between Babington and Mary Queen of Scots. So in September of 1586, seven conspirators, including Babington, were executed. Mary, the Queen, was executed in February of the following year. Poley, and perhaps Marlowe, had played some role as double agents. Poley would reappear in Marlowe's life at the time of his own murder. At any rate, at the intercession of the Privy Council, Marlowe received his Master's of Arts and subsequently left college for London and wrote his first play, Tamburlaine the Great, which was produced just two years later on the stage. About that time, Marlowe wrote his first literary production, his translation of Ovid elegies and love poems that were particularly erotic and had never before been translated into English. It was at this time that he became sponsored by Thomas Welsingham as his literary patron. Marlowe lived in London from 1587 until his death in 1593. He ultimately lived with one Thomas Watson near the Curtain Hoad Theatre in Norton, Folgate. In September of 1589, while living with Watson, Marlowe was arrested and brought to trial concerning the murder of a William Bradley. Bradley had engaged a thug to beat up a cousin of Watson, and Watson had taken out a petition of security against him. Bradley countered with his own suit, but was also determined to take matters into his own hand. Bradley lay in wait for Watson in an alley, Hog Lane, near his residence. Marlowe appeared, and Bradley accosted him. Swords were drawn, a fight ensued, but when Watson came out, Marlowe stepped aside. The fight by sword and dagger ranged through the alley, thrust and parry, and Bradley backed Watson down the alley against a ditch which was walled, and so desperately Watson could not retreat further, but turned, attacked, and thrust his sword into Bradley's heart. The coroner inquiry found the death had occurred by, quote, self-defense, and not by felony. During this time, too, Marlowe was alleged to have belonged to the so-called School of the Night, as that is famously phrased from Shakespeare, a group of young intellectuals led by Sir Walter Raleigh. Raleigh's collection of friends include various scientific and charlatan pursuits, ambitions, and follies. Among the members was Thomas Harriet, an astronomer, and John White, an adventurer to the Americans who first brought an Indian to England, and John Dee, who was a self-professed practitioner of alchemy in the occult, possessing a crystal ball, or so-called show stone, as he called it, 
which he used for the pleasure of the Queen herself, and which is now in the possession of the British Museum. Among the poets, in addition to Marlowe, there was Edmund Spencer and Chapman, who made the acclaimed translation of Homer. Drayton, Peel, and Campion were also in the circle. Finally, as a visiting luminary to the School of Night, was Giordano Bruno, a one-time Dominican monk, now a wandering scholar. His novel concept of a universe stretching out to infinity, literally, the sky having a depth where before, in two men's minds, the sky was supposed to have been a crystalline sphere, upon which the planets and the stars were illuminations, spaced or moving by patterns, ordained and eternal, now threatened the order of mind and men. The deity God, to his mind, was all-pervading as an essence, rather than a ruler, and was thus given to challenge the conceptions of the Church and Protestants alike. A poetic expression of such a deity is offered by Marlowe himself in Tamburlaine, quote, He that sits on high and never sleeps, nor in one place is circumscribable, but everywhere fills every continent with strange infusion of his sacred vigor. Bruno himself, in his tract De Immensio e Innumerabilibus, wrote, quote, The one infinite is perfect in simplicity itself absolutely, nor can aught be greater or better. This is the one whole God, universal nature, occupying all space, of whom naught but infinity can give the perfect measure or semblance. But to the medieval mind, such infinity was disorder. Only something finite could be perfect, and only the perfect could be as God would make it. Bruno anticipated certain modern views, the philosophical basis to scientific thought, by a predicate of philosophy though not experimentation with scientific knowledge. The idea of innate necessity, like that of gravity, caused all motion and all change. The idea of all is relative to one another by state and being and relative to point of view. The extension of atomic theory to a construct of material reality, seeing that all consisted of minima, as he called it, and monads, which in turn may combine to make the many different apparent forms and natures of things. Bruno was shortly convicted of heresy and was executed in 1600. In the spring of 1593, riots threatened London by reason of economic and social unrest due to discontent concerning the number of alien Protestant refugees. Plague was also fitfully threatening. Almost 11,000 persons will ultimately die of plague that year. Marlowe himself left London to escape the plague and took up residence at Scadbury, a manor house of Thomas Walsingham. The Council of the Star Chamber issued a proclamation on May 11th to arrest persons who were suspected of fomenting unrest by diatribe. One of those arrested was Thomas Kidd, who had collaborated to write a play, Sir Thomas Moore, with Mr. Marlowe, which by its subject would rankle the Protestant authorities, but which also contained 
explicit references to alien refugees from another time when such caused great discontent. Under the order of the Star Council, kids' chambers were searched and papers were confiscated. Among those papers was an anonymous tract of heretical views alleged to be a Arian heresy, that is, a denial of Christ's divinity. In fact, the document had been originally published in 1549 as a refutation of that heresy. At any rate, under threat of torture, Kidd told the council that the papers belonged to Marlowe. And indeed, in support of Kidd, it's believed that it was this actual tract that on one occasion Marlowe had read to Raleigh and the School of the Night in one of their sessions. The attention shifted from sedition to these atheist papers, as there was no ground for finding sedition, although Kidd was kept in the tower and was tortured nonetheless. Richard Baines, a hired government informer, was set the task to prove the case against Marlowe, and later would author a bill of accusations for various alleged heretical remarks by Marlowe. On May 18th, 19th, or 20th, Marlowe was arrested at Scadbury and brought before the Star Chamber. There's no record of these proceedings, for all proceedings of the Chamber are secret. But Marlowe was immediately released on bail. Marlowe took up residence at Deptford Strand, still removed from the plague abounding London, but near enough to comply with the daily attendance required by the Star Chamber. On or about May 27th, Baines delivered to the Privy Council his indictment of Marlowe. The litany of the indictment includes that Marlowe had these contrary opinions, that Indian artifacts predate the biblical date of creation, that Moses was a juggler, that is to say a sorcerer, and Harriet's, the astronomer and friend of Raleigh, could do more than he, that Moses made the Jews to travel for fifteen years a journey that would have taken them but one year, that religion was only meant to keep men in awe, that Christ was a bastard and his mother dishonest, that is to say a slut, but Christ was the son of a carpenter and the Jews did well to crucify him, and if there is any good religion it is that of the Papists, because they have better ceremonies, such as the elevation of the Mass, shaven crowns, organs, singing men, etc., that all Protestants are hypocritical asses, that the woman of Samaria and her sister were whores, and that Christ knew them dishonestly, that is, sexually, and St. John the Evangelist was Christ's bedfellow, that Marlowe had as good a right to make coins as the Queen of England, that Christ would have reconstituted the Holy Sacrament with more ceremony than the Church had, and it would have included the tobacco pipe, and that one Rick Chomley swears he was converted to atheism by Marlowe. There was no accusation of treason or sedition. It's hard to take these indictments seriously. But in at least two instances, and perhaps by other inferences, it seems that they were aimed indirectly at Raleigh and the school of the night. Raleigh may have been the true target of this persecution of Marlowe. At any rate, on May 30th, Marlowe was himself killed at a brawl in a public house in Deptford Strand. The facts of the matter of his death 
were actually not known until the middle part of the 20th century when a young scholar happened to find the coroner's inquest for this event and translated it from the Latin. The death is a matter of controversy, first because it followed so closely upon his arrest and Bain's indictment, and second because of its unlikely description, and third by the suspicious circumstances of the men involved. But there is nothing to conclusively dispute the facts that were found in the coroner's report. Four men that day and night, a Mr. Frizzer, a personal servant to Walsingham, Robert Poley, whom Marlowe had known from their mutual involvement in the espionage during the Babington plot, and Nicholas Scares, who was a friend with Poley, and somehow involved also in the affair of the Babington plot, and otherwise known to be a conman. Then, of course, Marlowe. All met and talked for some ten hours in a rented room off of a garden at an inn in Deptford, at six o'clock, after taking supper, a dispute broke out over the paying of the bill, and it said that Marlowe made a malicious remark to Frizzer, and then from the bed on which he had been lying, he drew the dagger from Frizzer's, quote, back, that is, behind him, on his belt, I suppose, and attacked him with it, wounding his face or scalp. Frizzer struggled with Marlowe, and in the course struck a mortal blow by driving that same dagger over his right eye into his skull and killing him instantly. In the legacy of these mysterious circumstances and the doubtful truth of his death, there have lingered a number of theories. I'll mention two. One, that Marlowe was murdered by the conspirators from the school of the night itself that included Walsingham and perhaps Raleigh, who feared that he might reveal their atheism when he was tortured. And it may be there was some other matters hidden, perhaps an intrigue with the future King James in Scotland, where it's alleged by Kidd that Marlowe had intended to flee. Of course, Raleigh who was an enemy to James, would eventually be imprisoned by him and executed by him. In a second, more notorious theory, it is held that Marlowe was not murdered at all, but had his murder feigned so that he could escape, and that then, in disguise, Marlowe, in this theory, later wrote the Shakespearean plays and sonnets. But whatever the truth of any of these matters is, somebody was buried in Marlowe's grave and he was never heard of again. I will close this background on the uh, legend of Faust with a reading from some of Marlowe's last play. It was, as I had written in my introduction, something of an unfinished play. He spent a great deal of time polishing and finishing Tamburlaine, and I have no doubt that he would have done the same with Faustus had he lived. And the play is, oh, choppy in places and lacks the kind of integrity to its story and its style that I think Marlowe would have given it had he had more time to work on it. Nevertheless, the play is famous for some gorgeous passages, the famous one being the reference to Helen, 
Was this the face that launched a thousand ships? Marlowe was undoubtedly inspired to write his play by the folktales concerning Johann George Faust, the real-life Montebank, cum itinerant sorcerer who had lived more or less contemporaneously with Martin Luther, and had had his story written down as a kind of Protestant religious tract as a moralistic cautionary tale upon irreligious and wicked self-aggrandizement. That is the book by John Spies, Faust book, which was published in English in 1592. But Marlowe, always keenly intellectual in his literary approaches, transformed the folktale in several important and controversial ways. First of all, the person of Johann Faustus is elevated to a scholastic distinction to be a reverend doctor of philosophy, indeed of theology, of very great renown, and one appointed to an eminent post in a famous university. Secondly, Marlowe deftly changes the protagonist's name from Faust, which means fist in the native German, to Faustus as a play upon its Latin meaning, the chosen, as it were suggesting an ironical antichrist. Allusions to the legend of Simon Magus reinforce this thematic alteration to his name. Simon Magus, who had called himself the Chosen, or Faustus in Latin, according to patristic legend, had been an erstwhile Christian bishop of Rome before St. Peter, and had competed with St. Peter to dominate the Holy See. Magus had averred he could fly, and St. Peter challenged him to prove it, whereupon his soaring flight into the brief sky briefly astonished the assembled Christians. But he was brought down, as by some stunning artillery of prayers, from St. Peter, hurled in a barrage against the devilish flying magus, who thence plunged to earth, crashed, and died. In another fitting association with magus, according to his legend, this pagan-like would-be Christian bishop had taken to wife a certain whore in his heyday, whom he claimed was the actual reincarnation of Helen of Troy. And in just this same manner, Marlowe's Faustus would resurrect Helen by incantations to become his consort. This, then, is the excerpt from the Tragical History of Dr. Faustus, the Atex, 1604. In what would have been, I guess, the fifth act, his play was not marked in acts, but this would have been in the fifth. Stage direction calls for the excellence of everyone except Faustus, who stands alone now in his study. And it states that the clock is striking eleven as Faustus begins to speak. Ah, Faustus, now hast thou but one bare hour to live, and then thou must be damned perpetually. Stand still, you ever-moving spheres of heaven, that time may cease and midnight never come. Fair nature's eye, rise, rise again and make perpetual day, or let this hour be but a year, a month, a week, a natural day, that Faustus may repent and save his soul. O lente, lente, curiti, noctis equi. The stars move still, time runs, the clock will strike, 
The devil will come and Faustus must be damned. For I'll leap up to my god who pulls me down. See, see where Christ's blood streams in the firmament. One drop could save my soul. Half a drop. Ah, my Christ. Ah, rend not my heart for naming of my Christ. Yet will I call on him? Oh, spare me, Lucifer. Where is it now? Tis gone. And see where God stretches out his arm and bends his ireful brows, mountain and hill. Come, come and fall on me and hide me from the heavy wrath of God. No. No, then will I headlong run into the earth, earth, gape. Oh, no, it will not harbor me. You stars that reigned at my nativity, whose influence hath allotted death and hell, now draw up Faustus like a foggy mist into entrails of yon laboring cloud, and when you vomit forth into the air, my limbs may issue from your smoky mouths, so that my soul may but ascend to heaven. Ah, half the hour is past. The strike and clock marks the half hour. Twill all be past anon. O God, if thou wilt not have mercy on my soul, yet for Christ's sake, whose blood hath ransomed me, impose some end to my incessant pain. Let Faustus live in hell a thousand years, a hundred thousand, and at last be saved. Oh, no end is limited to damned souls. Why wert thou a creature wanting soul? And why is this immortal that thou hast? Ah, Pythagoras, metempsychosis were that true. This soul should fly from me, and I be changed into some brutish beast. All beasts are happy, for when they die, their souls are soon dissolved in elements. But mine must live still to be plagued in hell. Cursed be the parents that engendered me. No, Faustus, curse thyself. Curse Lucifer, that hath deprived thee of the joys of heaven. Oh, it strikes, it strikes. Now body turn to air, or Lucifer will bear thee quick to hell, thunder and lightning. O oh, soul, be changed into little water drops and fall into the ocean, ne'er to be found. My God, my God, look not so fierce on me. Adders and serpents, let me breathe a while. Ugly hell gape not. Come not, Lucifer. I'll burn my books. Ah, Mephistopheles, And with that, the devils take Faustus away. By the by, it should be commented that people very much did believe in the devil in those days. When in one of the early productions of Dr. Faustus, in order to make it more vivid, they had devils run out on the stage with some firecrackers attached to their tails, 
The audience got so frightened that they ran out into the street. And it should be remembered that Martin Luther himself had an episode when the devil appeared before him, and he chased him out of the room by throwing his ink pot at him. <laughs> 